Well, we are looking, we have been looking at the basics of the Christian life. How does a person live as a Christian? Uh, first of all, how do they become one? It is through personal faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, it is through putting uh, your trust in the fact that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins and was raised from the dead. That is the gospel, that Jesus Christ died on the cross and was raised from the dead for your sins and for mine. Um, you know, that assumes some things. It assumes that you recognize yourself as a sinner. If you need help with that, um, ask your spouse or your closest friend if you are a sinner. They will most assuredly tell you that you are one. Um, because if they have known you very long at all, then uh, they will be able to give you a list of things that you have done wrong uh, against them that they have had to forgive you for. Amen? And, uh, and having recognized that you are a sinner, you need to recognize what God's Word says about your sin, which is that sin is a capital crime against God deserving of the death penalty. And that the only escape from that death penalty is to have someone who has committed no sin die in your place. And praise God, He has provided just such a person, Jesus Christ, His own Son, who became a man, lived as a, a man, lived a perfect life that we couldn't live, died a perfect death, uh, and was raised to new life to give us new life. And all who put their trust in Him have that new life. And then as, as the follow-on to that, there is a life to live of following Him. It begins by putting Christ at the center of your life and deciding that you will dedicate yourself to Him. And then uh, that's the hub of the wheel, if you will. It's the, the center pivot around which everything turns is the fact that you have Christ at the center of your life. And then you have also uh, the hub of the wheel, the part where... Your faith in Christ touches the world, and that is that you're going to be obedient to following Jesus in every part of your life. And there's four main areas of obedience, amen? There is uh, the vertical dimension of your relationship with God uh, that is built on a foundation of, of faith in Christ. You uh, continue that relationship, you grow in that relationship with Christ through prayer, where you talk to God, and the reading and study of God's Word, where He talks to you. And so both of you talk. You talk to God in prayer, and then listen as He speaks through the Word to you. And then there's also a horizontal dimension of your relationship with other people. Amen? If you look at your, at your Bible, if you look at the Ten Commandments, you get the same kind of division. The first four have to do with your relationship with God. The last six have to do with your relationship with other human beings. Because your, your, your spiritual life is not simply your relationship to God. Your spiritual life includes your relationship with the people around you. So there's no biblical idea of pulling back from every other relationship uh, in, your, in, in the world and just going off and living in the woods somewhere as a hermit. You know, climbing a pole and, you know, living up on top of a telephone pole isolated from everybody like some you know, medieval monks did, you know. Or, um, 
or going and joining a monastery so we can go be withdrawn from the world. You don't do that biblically. There's no, you know, you, you need to be just as involved in the world as Jesus was. You need to have the same kind of relationship to other people as Jesus did. Well, what is your relationship to your brothers and sisters who also follow Jesus? That's what we're going to talk about today. That's fellowship, loving one another. Um, and then next week, we'll talk about your relationship to non-Christians in the world, and that is witnessing or sharing the gospel with them. Now, if you look at your Bible, yeah, that's a good, there's a good picture of it. It's also on the back of your bulletin. Uh, if you, but uh, if you look at your Bible, you'll see a whole bunch of uses of this little phrase, one another, one another, one another. And it's, it's one word in Greek, which is nice, because then you can, if you have a good concordance, you can look up all the occurrences of that one word. And what you find is that there are over 50 places in the New Testament where there's a command involving the words one another. Over 30% of those include these words, love one another, love one another. And then as you look at the other places, what you discover is that you've got about another 30% that have to do with getting along with one another, right? How many of y'all have children? <laughs> okay. How many of y'all have trouble with your kids getting along in the car? <laughs> okay, right? I remember giving this same speech on many Sunday mornings when they were younger. Someday, I would like to come out to the car and get in it and not find my children fighting over where they sit, right? And I gave that speech like weekly, it seemed like for years on end, right? Um, because people have trouble getting along with one another. And sometimes Christians have trouble getting along with each other. And so about a third of those 50 commands have to do with getting along with one another. And then the, the remainder have to do with very practical, how do we do these kinds of things? And what, as you look at them, what you begin to realize is that is that when the Bible talks about fellowship, when the Bible talks about fellowship, and by the way, is that one of our favorite words as Christians? In fact, I don't think, I don't think it's a word that gets used in any other context outside of church, right? But we're going to get together, we're going to have food and what? Fellowship. And if we're in a big enough church, where are we going to have that, that gathering? We're going to have it in the fellowship hall, right? What's Fellowship. Well, if you ask the average Christian, they're going to say, well, it means a time when we get together and eat, right? <laughs> well, I'm all in favor of that, and the Bible is, in fact, in favor of that. But at the same time, the word fellowship has to do a lot with these kinds of one another commands of getting along with one another and loving one another. In fact, it's not too strong to say it, as I've titled it on your outline, that fellowship equals... Loving one another. That if you want to sum up all of the commands of Scripture has, that have to do with how do we relate to one another in the body of Christ, they all fit under this heading of loving 
one another. Loving one another. That what do we do? Well, we love one another. Well, how do we do that? Well, and there, there's all kinds of examples. And we'll get into some of those in a minute. But what we want to do, most of all, is look at the Scripture and what it has to say in one place about what it means to love one another. And so if you've got your Bible, I want you to turn with me uh, over to the book of 1 John. Now, that's not the Gospel of John. Uh, this is uh, one of the letters of John, three letters that he wrote that are right ahead of Revelation, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and then Jude, and then Revelation. So if you find, uh, if you find Revelation, just turn back a few pages till you get to 1st John, and, um, and uh, it's 1st John chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. So uh, I'm going to pray, and then we'll read the Scripture together. So let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, I thank you that you encourage us not simply to be so heavenly minded that we aren't any earthly good, but that you have a plan for us and how we are to relate to other human beings, that, um, that our faith might put tennis shoes on and walk around and be visible uh, so that people can know when, when we understand what uh, that God is love what it looks like as it's lived and father um, I pray that you would help us this morning to understand your word and to put it into practice we pray in Jesus name amen well John chapter 4 our first John chapter 4 verses 7 through 12 let's read them together Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Now, I want to look closely with you at the text, and, and as we look at it, I think you can see three important things that he is teaching us, that the Apostle John is teaching us in this text. And the first one is that brotherly love reveals true faith. Uh, verses 7 to 8 there, look at the text with me. John gives us in those two verses three reasons to back up his exhortation to love one another in the body of Christ. Uh, the, uh, the first one is that love is from God. You see that right there? For love is from God. Uh, love is, in other words, inherently an attribute of God. Something that God is. Not something that He does. Not something that He demonstrates, but something that God is. Now that may be uh, something that is hard for you to get your arms around, the idea of an attribute. But the idea is, is that is that love is, is in the nature of God, something that defines Him as a being. And is something that He uh, 
has always possessed because he is a Trinitarian God, right? Uh, we, we sometimes struggle to understand the idea of, of God being triune, and we even sometimes get confused when we pray and we say things like, thank you, Father, for dying on the cross. The Father did not die on the cross. Don't pray that way. Okay. Um, Jesus dies on the cross. He is the Son of God. We come to the Father through the Son by the Holy Spirit's power. Okay? Um, but because God eternally exists in three distinct, eternally equal persons, then within the Godhead there has always been an intra-Trinitarian love that exists between the Father and the Son, and between the Son and the Spirit and the Father and the Spirit. And so God is love. And we can say that. He did not become love when He created us, he, uh, like the Muslims teach. Uh, he is love. He is love and has always eternally been and always eternally will be a being characterized by love. And if God is love, then it follows that we who claim to worship Him should be like Him and love one another. Amen? That if we are of God, then we ought to love one another. Um, in addition to that, verse 7, is you get a second reason to back up John's assertion here. That loving each other like brothers and sisters shows that we have been born of God and know God. Now let me explain that a little bit. To be born of God is one of John's phrases describing people who have genuine faith in Jesus and who have been born again like Jesus talked about in the Gospel of John when he's talking to Nicodemus. You remember that? They have this conversation at night, John chapter 3. John, uh, Jesus sits down with Nicodemus and, and Jesus tells him, you must be born again. Well, John in his letters picks that phrase up about being born again and calls it simply being born of God. That you get reborn. And it's the idea that you, be, if you are born of God, that you have certain characteristics that are similar between you and the person who is your father. So let me give you an example, or several examples. Um, some of the world's leading long-distance runners of all types, um, you know, all types of long-distance races, are members of the Kip tribe from Kenya. And they are amazing. I knew a few of them when I was in college. My sister used to run uh, college cross-country and track, and she would have these, these African guys that were on her team, and they have a hip width of about this, you know. And they're just little skinny, kind of elongated, grasshopper-looking guys. But they can, um, they, they can run these amazing distances. One of them was a friend of hers named Maragi. And he could run 10,000 meters and like get done at the end and not even be breathing hard. And have won the race. I'm like, man, he could be like smoking a cigar the whole time. Uh, it was amazing, okay? And he would win these intercollegiate races and so forth and, and, and just not even be winded. Well, what is that? Well, that is a characteristic of people who have been born of that tribe. 
They are born at very high elevation where the air is thin, and they, uh, they make their living by running down the gazelles that live up at that elevation and catching them for dinner and then taking them home. Now, I don't know if you've ever run down a deer, okay? But let me just tell you, you need to be in shape for that <laughs> because the deer will outdistance you in a hurry, right? But they will run them until the, deer, until the gazelle quits running and then catch you. And it'll be 15 miles sometimes that they will run. It's amazing. They have been born of that tribe. Or did you know that, that most, the overwhelming majority of all of the Nobel Prize winners in science have been Jewish? The Jews truly are a blessing to the world. And most of the world's Nobel Prize winners are Jews. How is that possible? Well, they're born of the Jewish race. Or did you know that most of the world's best speed skaters are Dutch? Why is that? I don't know. They're Dutch, right? And I have some friends who are from that part of Michigan where a bunch of Dutch people live, and they say up there, if you're not Dutch, you're not much, right? <laughs> but uh, but, but they, uh, that they are born of that uh, group of people, right? And if you look, if you watch the Olympics, uh, the next time the Winter Olympics comes on, overwhelmingly, the very best of them will be, the Dutch speed, of the, the speed skaters will be Dutch. It's incredible, right? All these different groups of people have these things because they share certain characteristics together as a group of people. Well, what are the characteristics that we're supposed to share as Christians? That we love one another because the Father that we are related to is love. Amen? It's the same kind of idea. It's proof, if you love one another, it is proof that you have been born of God. What about this phrase, knows God? In the Bible, knowing God does not, does not mean what we mean when we say, you know, you ever had, had somebody ask you this question? Hey, do you know so-and-so? What do they mean? They mean... Uh, can you pick this person out of a lineup? Uh, are you casually acquainted with this person enough to know their name and who they are? But the Bible's word to know carries uh, a, a, an understanding, a connotation of deep relational connectedness. And so when John says that, you, that, that being a person who loves his brothers and sisters in the, Bible, in the body of Christ means that you are a person who knows God, it means that you are a person who has a deep relational connection to God. Not someone who is casually acquainted, but someone who knows Him like they know themselves. That, you know, the kind of knowing that we experience in our families or with our spouses. That we know one another, right? 
Verse 8 is the flip side. If you look at your Bible again, verse 8 is the flip side. It says, if you don't have love for your brothers and sisters, then you don't know God because God is love. It is one of his attributes. And if, it's, and if you don't have it, then it means that someone else is your father. If he were your father, you would exhibit love because that's who he is. And all of his children possess that quality too. Now, the point that John is making is not that non-Christians can't love. Amen? He's not saying that. Okay? What he is saying is that uh, the kind of brotherly love, the, the deep affection for one another that John has in mind is a supernatural thing. And um, it is love for people that you might not have much in common with other than your faith in Jesus Christ. You know, the thing is, it's always interesting. You know, whenever we're on vacation, we try to go to church somewhere. You know, if, it, if we're going to be gone on a Sunday, well, let's find somewhere to go to church. And guess what we find there? Our brothers and sisters. Whenever I take a missions trip and I go and I meet people who are Christians, you know, it's amazing the bonds that you develop with people whom you don't even share a first language in common with. But what are they? They're my brothers and sisters. They're my brothers and sisters. And the same thing ought to characterize our relationships within the body of Christ here. Amen? That the people that we gather with are in, in some sense uh, closer to us, meant to be closer to us than the people with whom we share a bloodline. That these are my brothers and sisters. You know, our through the Bible in a year reading this week, we read Jesus say, no one who has left behind father, mother, brothers, sisters, you know, wife, children, houses, fields, will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this life and in the age to come eternal life. Well, you might be wondering, well, okay. When I became a Christian, I left behind my family that I grew up in. Where is thy payoff? Look around. We're it. <laughs> okay. Uh, that may discourage you or encourage you, depending on your attitude, right? <laughs> um, but we're it. We're the ones Jesus was talking about. We are the people whom Jesus promised to give to bring into the family alongside those who give up their natural family to follow Him. Because does that happen? That sometimes when you become a Christian, you get cut out of your family? Yeah, it does happen. But the payoff is you get another one. You get to be members of God's family. And in God's family, it doesn't matter what color you are. It doesn't matter your socioeconomic status. It doesn't matter what your national origin is. It doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter how much hair you have. Uh, it doesn't matter what color it is. It doesn't matter. 
Because God is in the business of bringing all kinds of people into his family. Amen. And our calling is, since he is our father, to love our brothers and our sisters. And if we do, when we do, it shows that we really are born of God and know him personally. Now, two more things I want to show you quickly here. Uh, That... The love we have for one another is founded on God's love for us. In other words, if we love one another, we do so because our love is built on a foundation of God's love and it imitates it in relationships with each other. How do we know what God's love is like? Well, sometimes people get real gauzy on this. And they go, well, I don't believe in a God who judges people. I only believe in a God of love. Well, here's the deal how does the bible define god's love the bible defines it this way that in this is love not that we loved god but that god sent his only son to be the bible says the propitiation for our sins he loved us first why did he love us first because we didn't love him we were, we were sinners, amen? And that made us enemies. That made us people who not only hated God, but were hated by God because of our sin. And in the midst of that, He also loved us and sent His Son to die on the cross for us. To be the propitiation. What a propitiation is, is not just a $50 crossword puzzle word. It is a word that means the sacrifice that made peace between two warring parties. Who were the warring parties? Us and God. Would you do that, by the way? Would you willingly sacrifice your own child to make peace between you and one of your enemies? You're lying if you say anything other than not on your life. Shoot my enemy, sure. Okay, curse my enemy, absolutely. But give up one of my children to save his life? You've got to be kidding. And yet that is exactly what God did. In this is love, not that we loved God because we didn't but that He loved us when we were His enemies and sent His Son to die to make peace between us and God. That is a supernatural love. Who pays... Who, by the way, whose, whose law is it that says that sin is a, death, is a death penalty offense? God's. Who is the one who satisfies the death penalty that God's own law demands? God, God the Son, satisfies the penalty of the law that God's Father's own law decreed. It's an amazing thing. It's an amazing thing. Instead of punishing those who deserve to be punished, He punished those who did not deserve the the one who did not deserve to be punished, so that those who deserve to be punished might be made His children. 
His supernatural love has been given to us. His spirit has been given to us too. And God does these things in his love. And it leads John to the perfectly logical conclusion, verse 11, that since God is love, since God has shown us his love in the cross, then we who are followers of Christ and children of God should likewise love each other. That we should love the other people for whom God sent his son because he loves them. Does that make sense? That if God loves sinners, and if he loves them so much that he sent his own son to die for them, then those for whom he died should likewise love one another in the same way. That means laying your life down for each other. Love one another. Last thing here, verse 12, that God's love was not only um, not only revealed, not only reveals who understands and has true faith, it not only is our love for one another founded on God's love, but it also is something that reveals and perfects God's love in us. Um, look at verse 12 here closely. I want you to, to see this because this is beautiful. The first sentence there says, no one has ever seen God. And that's true. No one in their merely human nature has ever seen God the Father in all of his fullness and glory. No one has ever witnessed his complete self-revelation. That will have to wait until eternity. But let me point out something else that's very important. John wrote this very same thing in the prologue to his gospel in chapter 1 of of John's gospel, he writes, no one has ever seen God. God, the one and only who is at the Father's side, has made him known. In other words, he ties the fact that, that God cannot be seen with the fact that God discloses himself to us in Jesus and made him known to us in a way that we could not have otherwise known him. But here he uses the same phrase, no one has ever seen God, and he ties it not to Jesus, but look at your Bible. To whom? To us. In John's Gospel, we see that Jesus, who is God, shows us the Father and reveals Him to us. Here we see who revealing God's love. You and me as we love each other. And the point is this, is that as you and I love each other and the other members of the body of Christ, what we're doing is revealing who God is and what He is like in the very same way as Jesus revealed who God is and what He is like. Now, we're not going to do it perfectly, to be sure. No one believes in sinless perfection in this church, right? But our task is the same as Jesus was sent in the world to accomplish, to reveal the love of God to sinners. How do we do that? By loving one another. 
And John goes on to say, verse 12, that if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. What does that mean? It means that brotherly love for each other is a supernatural thing that reveals that we are full of God's presence. That's what the word abide means, to be full of God's presence, to be filled with his Holy Spirit. He abides in us by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit, When the Spirit is controlling how we live and interact with one another, then it's evident that He abides in us. And love is the proof that that is happening. And the idea is that, that His love is perfected in us is not the idea that God's love is imperfect and it needs to grow up into perfection. It's the idea that we become more perfect in our ability to reveal God's love as we love each other. Our love isn't perfect, but as we love each other, it grows and is revealed in a more perfect way. Right? Let me illustrate that. You know, there's a, 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 an old uh, Brad Paisley tune that I love called uh, Then. And this it's, it's written from the perspective of a man who's gotten married. And he's, he talks about how when he fell in love with his, his current, with his now wife, okay, when they were dating, he said, I thought I loved you then. And then he proposed, and I thought I loved you then. And then he gets married, and I thought I loved you then. And now he's an old married man. And he says, I don't know what's coming, but I thought I loved you then, and boy, I really love you now, right? Hopefully, in its, in, at its best, that's what marriage does, right? Is that your love for the person deepens and grows, and the longer you are married, you look back and you go, well, I loved you then, but, but now, so much more. Or my love has become perfected over time the same thing is meant to happen in our relationships in the body of Christ that we love each other but then we grow and we love each other more and more and more and more amen let me close with a quick uh, just a quick little story the apostle John is known to history as the apostle of love uh, he talks about it more than all of the other apostles probably combined. And the story is told that when he was an old man, and he lived to be a very old man, uh, stories say no one's really sure exactly what year it was that he died. Uh, they dated his death to the year of the emperor. Uh, I believe his name was Trajan. Uh, but in any case, he was somewhere between 90 and 105 depending on which account you read. And he was a very old man, and he could no longer walk. But he wanted to go to church every time that they met. And so there were some young men in the church who would go to his house and pick him up and physically carry him all the way to church and then all the way back home. Wheelchair hadn't been invented yet. And... <laughs> And they would carry him to and from church. And every week he would want to share with the congregation something that God was speaking to him about. 
And every week when he would speak, it was the same thing. He would stand up. Well, he couldn't stand. But he would sit and he would say, little children love one another. And the next week he would come back and he would say, I have a message I need to share. Little children love one another. And he did that week after week after week after week for years. And finally, someone asked him, and they said, you know, John, why is it you tell us every week to love one another? And he said, well, first, because it is the command of the Master that we love one another. And second, if we fulfill that, nothing else is needed. A lot of wisdom in that. So let me share with us, who are God's little children, a message for all of us. Little children, love one another. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we know that um, there are a lot of aspects, a lot of ways in which loving one another can get complicated. We sin against one another and we need to repent and be forgiven. We, uh, we have burdens that need to be borne with other people. We need to bear each other's burdens. We need to be generous with one another. There's all, all kinds of ways that um, these one another commands get lived out in love. Uh, with each other in the body of Christ. But Father, we, we do pray that Your love would be perfected in us, that over time we might grow and that we might um, be able to look back and say, well, I thought that we loved one another then, but we really love one another now. And by God's grace, we are still growing in our love for each other. Father, help us to be the community that puts on display your marvelous love for us and our relationships with each other. And Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name and for His sake. Amen. Amen.